Well, good morning. Good to see everyone here. Good to be uh, back uh, in, uh, in the pulpit. So please, uh, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we have sung about the, uh, the grace that is extended to us through the cross and through the blood of your Son. We uh, are in awe still uh, of how his blood is sufficient to cover all our sin. Uh, we are tempted at times, Lord God, to uh, question the extent of our forgiveness, your forgiveness of our sins, and we then uh, try to make up our, our own way of, of uh, atoning. And then we come back once again to your word, which reminds us that our salvation is by grace through faith, through that finished work of Christ. And then, Father, we have sung about living in um, community as members of your family, that our Savior has come to search for us and to carry us back uh, into the, the fold of God, back into the relationship that was broken long ago by our forefathers, Adam and Eve, and then continued for countless generations until the perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled all of the requirements of the covenant, and thereby through faith in him and his finished work, through his perfection, through his resurrected life, Father, we now come to be part of a family, a community that is bound by covenant, bound by the blood of Christ, bound by the love of God, and indeed knitted together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we move forward in our study of what it means to be part of this family, life within the family of God, as we come now to, to study, just get a glimpse of the nature and call of covenant. May we be encouraged and inspired not only to pursue a deeper intimacy with you, but then, Father, a deeper intimacy with one another as your people. So bless now, Father, the, the hearing and the preaching of your word. We thank you once again for our sins being forgiven. And we pray that in Christ's name, your Holy Spirit would continue to knit our hearts that we might, uh, through trusting him, attain to that unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God until we have all reached our full measure, uh, full stature of faith in him. This we ask, Father, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So as we move into the, the second week of our series on life in the family of God, we look at the nature and call of covenant this morning. And the, the text uh, for this, uh, this particular topic is coming out of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter. So I'm going to read verses 11 through 16 and then 29 to 32 of Ephesians 4, and then we'll connect that to the nature and call of covenant. So here now what the apostle says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as I said, as we start this second week uh, and we look at the nature and call of covenant, uh, I want to introduce the topic by telling you a, a story. So when I was 12 years old, my brother, uh, he drove me to uh, J.C. Penney's. At that time, it was the Bayshore Mall in Long Island. Uh, it was uh, 1970, and uh, he were, we were driving to J.C. Penney's to buy me a winter coat. Now, if you remember the 70s, some of you were not born in the 70s, but if you do remember the 70s, you know that the winter coat to have in that time was called a snorkel coat. I think there's a picture of it here uh, on the screen. There's, there's one. And then the second one, that's where it gets the name snorkel. They came in two colors. That one's in blue. The other one's in olive green. My brother had a coat like this in olive green. So by the rule of sibling, I had to have a blue one. This went against my mother's policy, whereby my brother and I always had the same clothes so we wouldn't fight. But she wasn't there when we bought the coat, and my brother, being older, had the authority. So I got a blue one. Now, back then, 12 years old, I was what you called husky. And there were certain department stores that had a husky department. Pennies did not have one. So we had to go to the men's department to find this coat, which we did. My brother pulled one from the rack, and with all the tenderness of an older brother, hands me the coat and says, here, try this on. Well, it was big. I mean, really big. It was size 42 big. The sleeves came inches below my fingers. The jacket came below my knees, and the hood drooped down over my face, down to my chin. Anthony, I said, my voice muffled because the hood covered my face. This jacket is too big. His response was, to say the least simple, it was direct and deadpan. You'll go into it. There's a sense in which learning to live in covenant relationship with one another, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's kind of like wearing a coat that is four sizes too big. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes patience to grow into this relationship that God has called us into as covenant members. All the responsibilities can seem overwhelming. All of the commitments can seem too large the requirements too demanding. But with time, with patience, and with sincere effort, every follower of Christ can indeed grow into that commitment, that requirement, and uh, those responsibilities. 
And before we, we move on into you know, the, the topic proper, let's just remind ourselves again of what is the covenant that we have agreed to as followers of Christ. So this is the, the covenant that we approved as a membership. That having, as we trust, been brought by God's sovereign grace to repent from sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having confessed faith in Christ and having been baptized, we, the members of Maranatha Grace Church, earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other as we strive to grow in Christ together. So my responsibility today is to lead us through the, what is the nature and the call of covenant and, and um, to understand what this means uh, will work with the following big idea, which is simply this, that the covenant is an explanation and a promise we make before God and one another to live out the Christian life. Or as I like to say it, it's a, a description and pledge we make before God and one another to practice what Jesus preaches. That really is what our church covenant is designed to do. Uh, there's a marvelous little book written by Thomas R. Schreiner called Covenant uh, and God's Purpose for the World. I recommend it. It's a short book. It's part of a series called Short Studies in Theology. Emphasis on short. <laughs> so the book is only a little over 100 pages long, and it's very, very dense, but it's very, very readable and very, very helpful. So in that book, Schreiner says that covenant, when you look at covenant throughout the Bible, it really is the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a story about God entering into covenant with his creation, entering into covenant with his people. It's how he deals with us. And if it's how God deals with us, then covenant is how we deal with one another. You think of a marriage covenant. We think of a church covenant. These are expressions of relationships that are formed. And in the context of our study this, uh, today, the Shriner's definition of covenant is very helpful because he defines a covenant as a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises and obligations to one another. A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises and obligations to one another. Now a covenant, first of all, is, is different than a contract. A contract is certainly an agreement. And it's certainly an agreement that has promises and obligations. The two parties that may enter into a contract usually involves a transaction requiring the exchange of money for goods and services. And uh, the promises, however, and the obligations that are made are rather impersonal and they're non-relational. You don't have to have a relationship with the person that you're entering into contract with. For instance, when Jill and I rented our apartment, we signed a rental contract. We agreed to pay a certain amount of money each month and in exchange, our landlord agreed to let us live in the apartment as well as make any repairs once we had met a, a certain uh, dollar amount and deductible. Now, should we fail to honor our commitment under contract to pay the rent, our landlord has every right to evict us. By the same token, if the landlord fails to meet the terms of the contract, we can, if we wanted to, take them to court and make them honor their commitment. So thankfully, we're on good terms uh, with our landlord. Actually, her parents live on the second the floor below us, so we have to be on good terms with them. But our relationship with them is not personal. And it is purely transactional. So the, the nature of a contract is impersonal and non-relational. 
and it's purely transactional. A covenant, on the other hand, is personal. A covenant, by its very nature, is transformational. And this transformation is the result of choosing to enter into a relationship with other believers by which keeping the promises and the obligations we make to one another leaves room for the Holy Spirit to change the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we behave. So the nature of a covenant is transformational. It's designed to change the way we think, speak, and behave. The call of a covenant, then, is personal. Because covenant membership means that we practice what we are learning about Christ and his gospel in the context of fellowship with other believers who are themselves keeping promises and obligations first made to God and then extended to the members of God's family. So keeping the promises and obligations of the covenant is how we help one another grow closer to Jesus and know one another better. Until the way Paul says it in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Another translation, um, the paraphrase looks at this in terms of helping one another reach our full height in Christ. You think of parents raising their children, teachers educating their students, the desires to lift them up, to help them reach a certain level of maturity and knowledge so that the knowledge they learn can be applied to how they live and they can contribute to the family, to the community, to the world at large. When you come right down to it then, covenant is always other-centered. We enter into covenant. Certainly there's a benefit to us in terms of entering into covenant. I am lifted higher. I am encouraged to reach my full height in Christ. But it's not a simple thing of just my receiving. I am then obligated to give back, to also encouraged to teach, instruct, and so forth. So the nature of covenant is transformational. It's designed to change the way that we think, speak, and behave. The call of covenant is personal. It requires that we practice the things that Jesus is teaching us in the context of community. This is clear throughout uh, the scriptures. And so if covenant is an explanation and pledge we make before God and one another to practice what Jesus preaches, here's how we're going to look at these uh, verses from Ephesians 4. Covenant is going to transform the way that we think. Covenant is going to transform the way that we talk. And covenant is going to transform the way that we behave. So let's, let's look at the, the text uh, as we have. So Paul writes in Ephesians 4, so he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the pastors, in other words, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." So covenant designed to change the way we think. We're, we're encouraged to think differently. This is really part and parcel of what Paul talks about later on or earlier in his uh, letter to the Romans. We always like to quote Romans 12, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That requires us to change the way that we think. 
It's part of being part of a member of his community. When Paul looks at the world, he sees a world in binary fashion. He sees a world in light and a world in darkness. He sees the world of the church and the world outside the church. So when he looks outside the church, what Paul sees is a, a culture that is swimming in chaos and disunity both of which, he says, are caused and find their cause in the devil. Back in chapter 2, whom he refers to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Inside the church, Paul sees a community that is living in peace with one another, united by their common faith in Christ and the fellowship that they enjoy and experience through the unifying work and sanctifying work, the way that Holy Spirit makes us holy through the Spirit. And the way that this unity is maintained, the way that we are able to, to grow with one another, is learning what we believe and why we believe it. Learning to think about why it is we do the things that God requires of us to fulfill the promises and obligations of the covenant. Paul wants the Ephesians to know what they believe and why, so they'll grow in their faith, and they will become spiritually mature followers of Christ. Spiritually mature followers of Christ create a community that is actively committed to building up one another, building up the church. At the same time, building up the church, then taking what is received by by the Spirit through, you know, uh, grace through the Spirit, and then sharing that with others. So we're building up one another for the very purpose that we can go out and fulfill the, the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that Christ has commanded us. Because it's as we practice those things, as we learn to think God's thoughts after Him, we are able to fulfill the promises and obligations of the covenant. By contrast, says Paul, you look at verse 14, followers of Christ who do not change the way that they think, who do not learn what they believe and why, who do not grow in their faith, risk becoming, in the words of one scholar, babies in an open boat at the mercy of wind and wave, driven off course by the roll of the dice. You're tossed to and fro because you're not sure what you believe. You're not sure why you believe it. You're, you're, and, and that uncertainty makes you like a, a, a ship being tossed to and fro, battered about by the wind and the wave. And you think of things like doctrine. Think of things like a subject like theology. Uh, the study of how we are saved. These kinds of ideas that originate from the scriptures, they are like the foundation of a home. You don't really see the foundation of your home. You don't really pay a whole lot of attention to it unless something goes wrong. But if the foundation of the home is strong, the home can withstand a whole lot of abuse from the wind and the waves and the weather. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. So doctrine is like that foundation because life is not always going to treat us fairly. Life is not always going to go the way that we want. We are not always going to feel as close to God as we want to feel. And it's doctrine that reminds us our feelings are immaterial. Truth is the thing 
that connects us to God, and truth is the thing that trumps our feelings. So if you're not learning to think about how God works, about how the scriptures work and how it informs the way we think, you're going to be tossed to and fro. You're going to look at, you're going to look at the economy. You're going to look at high gas prices. You're going to look at the confusion coming out of our, our government officials and think, wait, this is, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do here. But if we are grounded in the truth, we can say, well, you know, governments rise, governments fall. Inflation comes, inflation goes. These things can be ridden through and, and um, endured because of a fundamental trust in God's sovereignty, in God's assurance, and in the community that he has given us to share life with. We can pray for one another and help one another out. So mature followers of Christ are not tossed to and fro. They are stable. They are solid. They are secure because they know what they believe and they know why they believe it. They experience the truth of the gospel by how it changes the way they think about God, themselves, and the world, and the people around them. We're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. But we test. Right? Go back to um, what John says in 1 John. We test the spirits. We examine things and ideas under the lens of Scripture. So we're not taken in by human, coming, a human uh, cunning or the craftiness of deceitful schemes. But we grow into our faith by paying attention, and in the context of Ephesians 4, pay, paying attention to those whom Christ has entrusted with a very specific ministry for a very specific time. And he lists who these ministries are, these gifts that God has given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Because their task is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, all for the purpose of helping all of us attain the unity of the faith to a mature person as we strive to follow Christ. So each one of the ministries that is spoken of here in Ephesians 4.11, if you notice, they all involve speaking and they all involve teaching the truth. Each one of these ministries aims to, to help believers grow into their faith by teaching them the, the ABCs of Christianity, or even the A to Z of Christianity. Because the longevity of, of any church, the sustainability of any church, depends not simply on what is being taught from the pulpit by those who are entrusted with that ministry, but it also depends, and I think equally as much, on every member learning and practicing the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And it's always impressive to me when I think about it, because we think, oh, these things are so, these theological terms, these doctrinal things are so heavy. When you think about it, that most of the people Paul addressed were not very literate. And yet he writes, you read Ephesians, read the first three chapters of Ephesians, and Paul just, he is speaking at, at, at PhD level to people who maybe only have an eighth grade education. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to pull them up. He wants to lift them up. He says, these are the lofty things that God has spoken. 
And if we can begin to wrap our minds around that, we can begin to think more and more God's thoughts after him. And the longevity and success of any church depends on every member learning how to study the Bible, learning how to apply the Bible, learning what it means to know what we believe and why. You think of Paul's instruction to to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That instruction is not limited to seminary-trained pastors and teachers. It is directed to everyone in the church. Because earlier in 2 Timothy 2, Paul is telling Timothy, the things you've learned and seen in me, entrust these to faithful people. So as Paul is instructing Timothy to be a workman who need not be ashamed, handling rightly and accurately the word of truth, That's what Timothy is telling his congregation. I want to entrust to you the things that God has communicated so that you can learn to think in a way that allows you to figure out how can I apply what God has said? How can I apply the gospel here? How is it changing me and how is it changing how I look at the world? Remember, doctrine, that foundation upon which we build our lives. Truth, right? The goal of this series then From the outset, and certainly the goal of our current sprint, Life in the Family of God, is that we would be encouraged, all of us would be encouraged, to study the gospel, to know the gospel, and to practice the gospel as part of a covenant community. Our responsibility as pastors, then, is to help one another grow toward that goal so that we can indeed attain to the unity of the faith. So at least we know this is what the Bible says, and this is how we're going to apply what, that's, what the Bible says to our lives. So this means that the, the prayer meeting after CWG on Sunday mornings, the, the discipleship groups that are meeting, the Bible studies, the, the sermons, the youth group, Kids, and any other kind of ministry that takes place that has MGC, you know, approval, if you will, all have a single goal, to transform the way we think through personal interaction with one another as we study, learn, and apply the gospel. And as your pastors, I think you know this, but I'll say it anyway, we we are truly committed to knowing the gospel, to teaching the gospel, and most importantly, practicing the gospel. We are committed uh, to covenant, being transformational and personal. Because it's how we grow into our faith. It's how we build up one another until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's really what Paul is talking about in in Philippians 2. That marvelous passage where he talks about, I'm not only going to be with you, but when I'm not with you, I want you to continue to work out your faith, he says, with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So how do you work out your own salvation unless you are doing that in community with other believers? Because that's Paul's intent. That we we test, if you will, what we think by discussing what we think with other members of the body. Is this true? Is Is this what the gospel says? Or am I not seeing things clearly? This is where 
conversations can be very helpful. Because learning how to think is a challenging thing. It's, you think in terms of what influences how you think. Who are your influences? Some of us are influenced perhaps by what we hear in NPR. Some of us are going to be influenced by what we hear in Fox News. Some of us are going to be influenced by what we read in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. When you're in high school, you're influenced by what everyone else around you says is important. And who's an influence? Who's getting more likes? Not a whole lot changes when you're grown-ups, because <laughs> we're still looking for approval. But if we're thinking clearly, in terms of knowing that our approval, our affirmation, and our acceptance comes from God through our trust in Christ, it really doesn't matter what other people think. It only matters what God thinks. And if God is clear about the way he thinks about us, which is that he, he sought us, he saved us, he redeems us, he, made us, he makes us holy, he brings us into a family of believers, that kind of thinking has a positive influence and effect on how we not only relate to him, but relate to one another. So, co so covenant is transformational in that it transforms the way that we think. But it also transforms the way that we talk. In verses 15 to 16, Paul writes this, rather speaking the truth in love, this is following up on the idea of not being tossed about every wind of doctrine. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I read these verses and I'm, I, my, my mind goes to the quote that Pastor John uh, shared from Aaron Minikoff uh, in which he writes, uh, he describes a covenant like this, that if a statement of faith is a synopsis of right doctrine, the covenant summarizes right living. The covenant aids church leaders and members by describing what a Christian life looks like. Proper use of a church covenant encourages members to take responsibility for each other's holiness. And one way that we can do that is by learning how to, or changing the way that we speak and speak to one another. Because growing into our responsibility for each other's holiness means, in fact, learning how to speak the truth in love. It's how we help each other grow into our faith. It's how we learn to resolve conflict, to correct bad behavior, to encourage good behavior, to affirm good behavior. It's how we learn how to have difficult yet honest conversations. Speaking the truth in love is important with regard to how we can build one another up. Uh, it's wonderful to be passionate for the truth, and we certainly are passionate for the truth here at Maranatha. At the same time, a love and a passion for the truth must also be balanced against the love and a passion for Christ. I think I like the way John Stott says it in his commentary on this text. He says, truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. So there's this balance. Speaking the truth in love requires a certain wisdom, a certain way of thinking. There are many times when I'm in conversation with someone, and it may be a difficult conversation, or it may be a conversation in which I'm uh, having to think about what I'm going to say very clearly. And, I, and I, I've learned over the years to ask a very simple set of questions. Before I say anything, I ask myself, is what I'm about to say 
helpful or harmful? Will it build up or will it tear down? Will it reflect the grace of Christ or my own sense of justice? Do I want to get my shot in or do I want to let the Spirit use me to say a word that is gentle, kind, maybe firm, but do it in a loving way? Understand as well that by doing that, you're, I'm trying to, my best to follow what James says in James 1.19, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. So a lot of times, I won't say anything, and I'll just listen. And then I'll, I'll filter through, and then I'll speak. Because the other thing, too, about this is sometimes when you speak the truth in love, you're going to be misunderstood. Your words are going to be taken the wrong way. They may be misinterpreted to mean something different than what we mean them to say. That's why covenant then becomes so important because if we are truly living in community with one another, when what we say is misunderstood by the other person, the other person being in covenant relationship with us has the means by which to say, I disagree with that. I don't understand what you're saying. That was hurtful. Please clarify. Please explain what you mean. Because if you're approaching it from the standpoint that you're two people of essential, basic goodwill being transformed by the Holy Spirit more and more to the image of Christ, you ought to be able to disagree. You ought to be able to have conflict. So long as the goal in that is to speak the truth in love, to arrive at a reconciliation that is coordinated by the Spirit based on that covenant relationship. It's not always easy. But there are means by which God has supplied us to make those things happen. Because learning to speak the truth in love is how we follow Paul's encouragement in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then again, in, in Colossians 4, 6, one of my favorite passages, one of the passages that I think about when I say something in a conversation that may be difficult. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I love that. Seasoned with salt. Think about what salt does to food, how it flavors it, how it enhances it. So learning to speak the truth of love is, is designed to enhance and build up the relationship, not tear down. We use our words. We had a confession where we talked about sometimes we use our words to tear down because we let our anger get the best of us. We let our bitterness, our envy, and our jealousy determine what we're going to say, which is a real revelation in terms of then what's going on in our heart. Right? So what's in our heart? If our heart is filled with truth, because our mind has been filled with truth, then the things we're going to say, even though they may be hard, will be the truth. They will reflect the grace of God. They will reflect the saltiness, if you will, of the gospel. Learning to speak the truth in love, then, is it's part of a lifestyle that is characterized by honesty, by sincerity, and integrity in all things. Because we're really, when we speak the truth in love, we are aiming for the, for the benefit of the other. It's not just simply, I'm going to get my opinion out, and that's it. <laughs> Years ago, when I served in North Dakota, I would have 
discussions with some of our farmers, and they would, the way the, they would end the conversation was this, well, that's just the way I feel, and that's it. And it was, it was like, well, the way you feel is wrong. <laughs> well, that's the way I feel, no discussion. You, if you're speaking the truth and love, you've, it's got to be a two-way thing. You've got to be willing to transform the way that you think, the way that you speak. Because it's how we help one another grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, Paul says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that the church becomes this self-sustaining, self-supporting body, if you will, aided by the Spirit, but we're building up one another. By having the way we think and the way that we speak transformed. And then lastly, covenant then transforms the way that we behave. And at the, at the end of, of the chapter, Paul writes this. Let no this is, he has already listed a group of sins before this in 20, uh, 25 to 28. And then he says in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul is simply talking here about how we are to behave toward one another. We are supposed to behave toward one another like Christ. All of the sins of the old self, this corrosive speech, dishonesty, this persistent and one-sided anger, stealing, petty larceny, things that he's alluded to in verses 25 to 28, all of those sins are committed by non-Christians. But here Paul is talking to Christians. He's telling Christians, put away all malice, put away all slander, let all corrupting talk be put away. This is not meant to embarrass them. This is not meant to talk down to them. He's speaking here the truth in love. He says, these things ought not be. And sometimes pastors have to say these things. Well, it's not just pastors. Sometimes brothers and sisters have to say these things to one another. Say, hey, you're out of line. You can't say that. You shouldn't do that. That's improper. That's wrong. That's speaking the truth in love to one another so that we can correct the way that we behave, so that we behave more and more like Jesus and less and less like we did before we knew Jesus. Which is sometimes revealed when we're driving on 208. Paul speaks this way because he and the Ephesians are all members of one body. So that the way we behave, I think it's one of the, one of the, the bitter fruits, I think, of, of, our, of being Western, being American, is the fact that we're, we, there is such a, a, a stress on being individualists. That we want to stand out. Right? We're, we are not content being part of the herd. Right? We want to be the one who has the most likes or the, gets the most notice or things like that. And we, we tend to forget that when we're part of a covenant community that's a church, we're part of a covenant community that's a church. So our, my behavior affects and reflects on this community, as does yours. It's as if Paul is saying here, hey, look, <laughs> brothers and sisters, we're on the same team here. If you lie, if you cheat, if you steal, if you go overboard with your anger, if you get drunk, if you create grudges, Give a foothold to the devil in your relationships with non-Christians as well as your brothers and sisters. You're giving all of us a bad name. And worse yet, 
You're grieving the Holy Spirit. So understand is that wherever you go, whatever you do, you represent us. In fact, you are us. Paul is letting the Ephesians and us know that on no uncertain terms that the unity in Christ and community in Christ means more than just worshiping together on Sunday. That we are not simply the body of Christ only when we gather in the same room on the same day at the same time. That we're more than just a community of Christ when we have a meal with our discipleship group or we just hang out with our friends but it requires us to live with the mindset that I belong to a community of men and women, brothers and sisters and children that are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel requires us to live like that and then practice that out in the world. A world (laughs) which, as we become more and more aware of, is filled with people who record what you do and post it online. And that's why Paul mentions paying attention to how you behave. Because how we live reflects on the community to which we belong. How we live reflects our relationship with Christ and with God. If the kind of behavior that Paul lists lying, cheating, stealing, thievery, if those kinds of things are not tolerated by the world, right? you can go to jail for some of those things, many of them, then it ought not be tolerated within the church community either. Because every sin that he lists there destroys unity and undermines charity and ultimately agrees the Holy Spirit, which is the greatest concern. It's one thing for me to grieve you by my activity that's sinful, but a completely different thing to grieve the Holy Spirit, whose role it is to make me more like Christ. So you think about what could damage the body of Christ more than corrosive speech, backbiting, innuendo, and insult? What could injure and undermine the relationships we have before God and with one another more than bitterness that leads to, to rage or uncontrolled anger, perhaps descending into verbal and physical brawling, and eventually slander? which then leads us to commit every form of injustice. Paul says this is not how Christians behave. And thankfully, (laughs) thankfully, Paul turns the corner on this. He doesn't leave us in this pit. He provides the antidote for these sins. He says this is how you used to be. This is how you are, and this is how you can be. Because the antidote to these things is be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. So before we speak that word of slander, before we speak that word of gossip, before we act out in anger, before we act out in an uncontrolled way, the halt to that, the speed bump to that, if you will, be kind, be tenderhearted, remember that God has forgiven you for that exact sin. So season what you're about to say with grace as with salt. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Because forgiving one another, that contributes to the overall health, stability, and, and witness, as well as the, 
the health of, of the church. It's, it's really the backbone of our relationship with one another, the fact that we have all been forgiven by Christ. So covenant is transformational. Once we were separated and alienated from God, but now in Christ we have been brought near into relationship with him. We are now his children. We are now related to one another by the blood of Christ that has sealed our redemption and the Holy Spirit who is given to us as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance forever. Covenant is personal because salvation may work on an individual basis. We are saved as individuals. We are saved individually. But we are called as individuals to live out that salvation as part of a community. That takes us back to what Paul talks about in Philippians 2. We're to do that in relationship with other individuals. Covenant means that we belong to Christ. We belong to one another. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we represent Christ and his church. We represent Maranatha as a local expression of the body of Christ. We are called to be everyday Christians, not just Sunday Christians, not just once-in-a-while Christians. We're called to be everyday Christians, whether we're at home, whether we're at school, on the internet, at the supermarket, at the mall, or driving on the highway. Remember, it takes time, it takes patience, and it takes sincere effort to grow into a community that fulfills the commitments, requirements, and demands of covenant. I began this message uh, with a story about a coat that was four times uh, too big for me. I pointed out that there's a sense in which learning to grow into our commitments, responsibilities, and demands of covenant are like growing into that coat. They are overwhelming at first. They may seem too large, too demanding, but with time and with patience, we grow into them. Physical growth happens naturally. Spiritual growth happens supernaturally and requires a commitment to follow Christ. And, and uh, <clears throat> happily, my brother was right. I, I grew into that snorkel coat. Yeah, we bought it. It was, it was on sale. We, we bought that coat, and I grew into it. I, I, as a matter of fact, I wore that coat till I was 30. I didn't outgrow it. It just got old. <laughs> Here's the thing. Eventually, we grow out of the clothing that we wear and we buy. But we will never outgrow our need to grow into our faith. We will never outgrow our need to live in covenant membership with other believers. And we will never outgrow our need to take responsibility for one another's holiness. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are patient with us as we learn to grow. We thank you that you have given us a loving family to work out our salvation. A loving family that affirms us when we do well, and corrects us by speaking the truth in love when we don't. We are modeling our lives, we ask, on the, on the very life of Christ with the help of your spirit. Help us, Father, to fulfill the nature of covenant as transformational and the call of covenant as personal as we seek to follow you and attain to the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.